Carmen Diardo is Technology Director at Nationwide Insurance. Carmen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. Nationwide Insurance is a 90-year-old company. There are over 8,000 engineers and 25,000 other employees and enough customers to have about $30 billion in revenue. This show is about software engineering, so I'm more interested in things like the amount of data you accumulate and the number of transactions per second. But what did Nationwide's technology stack look like before you came to the company? So I came to Nationwide about 10 years ago, and I'm not sure the technology stack has drastically changed in terms of some of our applications. Um, you know, we draw a lot of Java applications, mainframe applications. We still have a lot of, you know, quote, systems of record. Some of the back-end record-keeping system, we're still mainframe, although some of that is being transitioned to um, Java or .NET technologies. And then, obviously, recently, you know, we, with mobile, there's been some change of technology. So, it I think a lot of the change hasn't so much been necessarily the business applications, although we are going to some other types of business applications and packaged business applications and for some of the commodities, but it was more around our development process and some of the technologies that we're using there and how that whole delivery value stream, I think, is, which we didn't even talk about 10 years ago, but you know, how we're really looking at what, what that is and how we can improve that. So this is iconic of the DevOps movement, which I had a misconception about coming into the week of episodes about the shows. I thought it was about a set of technologies that enabled some certain business practices, but it seems to be more about the business practices or the processes themselves. Um, you mentioned the value stream. I've heard this term several times in my conversations. What is that value stream? Could you define that term? So I think when you look at the delivery value stream, it sort of talks about from your initial interactions with your business-facing you know, representatives to the customers, right? So we have, two, we have various types of customers. We have agents. We have the public at large, right, who's, who's buying insurance and things like that. Um, and then we, we also have internal customers, customers of Nationwide themselves who are using different systems like help desk and things like that. So um, it really starts with your interactions with the customer in terms of understanding what the business needs are and then through the process of determining what you're going to build – quote, requirements, right? And I don't want to make this sound waterfallish, but it's understanding what you're trying to build, delivering that into your development teams, which are now agile, and then, and then going through the build, test, iterative process, you know, deployment all the way through the, the delivery of that to your customer again, and again, you kind of have two, again, so you have those original customers, but then you also have your operations folks who are supporting it and then getting that feedback. So the delivery value stream is really how we're delivering the value from the message we hear from the customer back to the customer, right? So the delivery value stream always, or a value stream always starts with, a, with your customer and ends with your customer, and it really talks about how you translate their needs into a product you're going to deliver and then get feedback 
and work to continuously improve it. So that's the value stream. And I think when you look at the challenge that DevOps sort of provide, that we face, especially with large enterprises, that value stream had to go through several you know, silos, which you've probably heard about, right? So you had a silo dedicated to planning. You had a silo dedicated to building. You had a silo dedicated to operations. Um, and then even within those silos, you had silos. So within in your build process, you had people who were focused on you know, one, con- one, one slice of what that was, and, and, you know, that was mostly waterfall. So, so if you look at it, what DevOps does is sort of turn this and say, how do you take that horizontal slice through plan, build, run, or whatever, whatever your model might be at a company and understand how we can make that more efficient and more effective? And I think this is, you know, one way to describe this is like, you know, you mentioned the term waterfall. I think of the waterfall as this flow from high to low. You know, a waterfall is, you know, physically it's water coming off of a cliff where, you know, higher, if you wanted to think of the analogy as a hierarchy, you know, this is like edicts coming down from the high areas of the hierarchy flowing downwards. Whereas the idea of a value stream, a stream is a much more level, physical uh, construct. You know, the, it, it flows evenly, so you can think of it on as more of a implying some sort of a flat, uh, flat organizational structure. So, with that said, I'm curious. You know, if if the organization was more waterfallish when you came into the company, um, and it is more value streamish or DevOps oriented at this point, how has that change manifested uh, in terms of the processes and the uh, the technological approaches you've taken? Yes, that's a great question. So I think the initial the initial journey that we took here really started around agile. Um, in fact, you know, 10, 12 years ago, DevOps didn't even show up as as a blip, if you looked at you know Google Analytics or something, you were searching. Was anybody even talking about DevOps? I mean, back then it was all around Agile. So when you looked at Agile, what it did is is it had a lot of the the same principles, right? And around you know, first of all, having a cross skilled team, right? So breaking down some of the barriers. So rather than have developers and testers, you still had the functions of development and testing, but you were trying to do things in a cross-skilled way. So you brought the team physically together, sitting together, these whole team kinds of concepts. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm sure you probably, there's a lot that's been written about Agile, so I'm not going to really go into the details of Agile, but that's how we started. We got a lot of results, so it even manifests itself from, you know, the physical locations and the furniture and, and how we had to transform some of that. And some of our, even some mundane practices like time tracking, because it was like people were used to bring, the concept was you bring people to the work. So if you had a project and it affected application area, you would bring different facets of that team to the work and you would sort of rally around a project. Well, if you think about the whole norm Storm, form, norm, storm, perform, whatever. That's I always get those confused. But you, you essentially were building and rebuilding teams all the times around projects, which went away. 
So what you really wanted to do was build a team around your your and keep that team together and then move work to the teams rather than moving the people to the work, move the work to the team and build a high performance team which could then utilize some of these agile practices, right? Automated testing, continuous integration, um, you know, two in our case, two-week iteration, show and tells, iteration plan, all the things, the management side and the engineering side that made you more effective from an agile perspective. So so that had a big impact on the organization. And we went from a handful of teams in 2008, which really started out as an experiment because people weren't really sold on this, to, you know, a couple over you know, a couple hundred teams today. So, so when you, but when you take a step back and, and that was all good and we got some great results in terms of productivity and quality and, and, and delivery, but you take a step back, what you find is you sort of optimize the middle of your, that value stream or that value chain we talked about, right? And you still haven't, you still have issues up front because you, when you talk about flow, that's a great analogy, right? Because you want flow and you actually would like fast flow, right? Because, you know, in terms of velocity. Well, up front, we still had, if you will, dams or weight states or, you know, forms of, of weight because we didn't have work that was continuously coming into our teams, right? We still had an annual funding cycle. There was it really was more like dropping a bunch of stuff on a team at one time because it was like all of a sudden here comes this big almost like the damn bursting of work at you which which completely you know overloaded the teams and then on the downstream side we even when the teams were done we weren't ready to deploy into production we still had a long series of steps manual activities i call them high ceremony processes to get you to deployment so so what devops brought to the table was then saying okay now take a step back and and look at your process and say how do you now achieve the same velocities you have in the middle at both ends so that you can actually get a faster delivery cycle and faster feedback so people are probably hearing this and they're hearing a lot of process oriented things um could you Make this more concrete for the listeners. Could you give a specific example for how um, things maybe maybe there's a certain business process that uh, occurs within the within nationwide that the way that it's executed today contrasts starkly with the way it was executed prior to trying to think about things in terms of DevOps. Okay, so I'll give you an example of one of our first forays was was around um, in a release planning, release management, and deployment. So if you look at how work came in, right, so we have a – every enterprise has some tool that they do their portfolio planning work in, right? In our case, it's Clarity, um, but there's other types of tools, right? So you kind of do your planning. And That's a portfolio of what exactly? Portfolio of, of – projects, right? So you determine okay. what kind of projects and you prioritize them and you wait to get funding and etc. So now in our case, so there tends to be a tool, you know, there's some kind of tool supporting that. Clarity, uh, CA Clarity is one of the tools that's popular in that space. Um, 
so now you have work and now you say, I want to start this work, right? So now you would say, okay, I'm going to write requirements for this, right? Uh, you may, at one time, the way you wrote requirements was just in a Word document, right? So, so I have these portfolio or project plans that are sitting in one tool, Clarity. I have, I have requirements that are sitting in Word documents or something. Now, you know, if I'm going to do a development plan, maybe I have another project management tool or something, Microsoft Word, Clarity also has a workbench that has a project plan, right? I may have, in our case, we had another tool that sort of, you know, we used to show how the content of a release was and kind of manage a release across applications. And then you have your engineering tools, right? You have your continuous, so you have your your source code repository, your build process, right? You're doing continuous integrations using like Jenkins. And then you have some way of doing deployment, which might be just a bunch of scripts, right? I mean, it may not even be some automated tool 10 years ago. So you have all these different things going on that you don't have any visibility of in one place. You don't have I mean, we talked about flow before. Well, if you go up to the fourth floor of a, of a, uh, you know, a manufacturing, a, like a, you know, a car plant, you can actually see the flow, right? It's right in front of you. You can actually see the assembly line. There, there was no way to see this flow of work, which made it hard to manage and hard to predict and, and hard to automate. And, and there was also a lot of variance in how these things were done. So... What we did is say, okay, let's look at this and see how we can create a flow of work here. So when the work starts in Clarity, we have a tool. We, we, use, we use an integration technology called TaskTop. Um, it's a company in, in Vancouver um, where it takes that initial work request, kind of like your order system or almost if you want to think about it, and it integrates that directly into our rational tool suite so that now it shows you can see the work coming into the system, which feeds our agile teams, right? So now this work goes through our agile process and also is scheduled into releases, which then the rational tool suite integrates with the urban code tool suite. So you can actually see and manage the work and see all your dependencies. We also can integrate it with things like, uh, you know, our defect management system. So you can now see your defects, right? So I can go into a dashboard now. I can see here's the work. Here's how it's scheduled. Here it's defects. Um, with Urban Code, you can actually see the versions as it gets built. It, it goes into a code station. So it comes out of your Jenkins environment, gets into a code station, and you can see your pipeline from a, dev to IT to ST to PT. You can apply quality certifications to it based on passing certain tests, and you can then deploy it based on its readiness. So that now from kind of soup to nuts, all is visible. You can see exactly what's happening. If something slows down that's going to impact something else, you, you can see it because you can see the dependencies and the impacts, and everything is brought into it's all real-time information, so I can trust it, right? I'm, I'm not waiting on an email. I'm not logging into another system. So, 
so just the ability to see everything as it progresses is a big advantage. Then it gives you an opportunity to automate some of this. So you can, for example, run tests. If they pass, you can, you can automatically go you know, to your environments to, uh, as long as they meet your quality certification so that you can actually speed up you know, your deployment capability. So it addresses both kind of the visibility and the flow issues at the front end and some of the deployment automation at the back end getting this all together. Um, yeah, I spoke to the creator of Jenkins last week, and um, he, he said something along the lines of uh, the fact that Jenkins and I think some of these other continuous delivery uh, DevOps uh, visibility type of tools that you talked about, they allow faster feedback, and the fast feedback is really a property of DevOps um, because I think you know DevOps seems to be about uh, connecting the business and the engineering teams across a tighter feedback loop, allowing for tighter business decisions, quicker business decisions. And uh, I noticed that as a theme as uh, you know what you were saying there. Um, so another thing you said was you mentioned variance, and you have said that uh, one of the biggest challenges is quote variance in your own processes. What do you mean by that variance? So, for example. Um, in in Gene Kim's book, The Phoenix Project, one of the things that I think Bill is the main character, and you know, the, there's a lean guru in there, and one of the questions he keeps asking is, what's your work? Do you know what your work is? What type of work do you have? And Bill is like, fumbles around at that for a while, and it doesn't really understand that there's four types of work, right? There's like business value work and operations and changes and unplanned work. Um, so kind of, so the variance I talked about, let's start at the beginning of the process, right? How does work come into your system? Well, in our case, I said we're mostly sort of all using this one. We're using clarity to bring work into our system, but, but, you know, we have 20 different business facing IT areas and, and so you have 20 opportunities for people to do everything a little bit differently that will then create problems, right? So, so if I plan my work one way using using a tool, then somebody else plans their work a little bit differently, and somebody else does it a little differently. And now I have twenty variations of how work is can enter the system. I don't want to build. It's going to be very hard to build a technology to capture twenty different ways. When really, if you ask the question, there's not necessarily any value in one way or the other. It's just sort of arbitrary just because there was never a desire to necessarily create standard work. So standard work is a lean concept. So a lot of what you're hearing here, right, is, is applying lean concepts to, the side, to our delivery capability, right? Standard work is a lean concept. Another example might be defects. Let's say I wasn't even using one tool for defect management. I was using three. I was using four. I was using six. If I want to then integrate with that to bring the defects into my uh, my release platform so that I can make determinations of, of the readiness of the code to be deployed, I'd have to build six different integrations or seven different integrations just because I was using seven different tools to record defects. Or maybe I'm not even... You know, I'm not even mature enough to use a, a standard tool, right? So all that variance 
in the in the process just creates I mean the model I sort of use is if you're gonna automate something you have to have a pattern and if you're gonna create a pattern then you have to reduce variance. So I can't automate things that I can't create some kind of patterns for. And that's not to say there's got to be one way to do things, but there's if there's any difference, they have to be based on some value, not just arbitrary. And I think what you find in a lot of enterprises and even not other customers I talk to is the, uh, these concepts of standard work and eliminating variance are not, you know, or something that IT is not necessarily, especially large IT companies, you know, the horses and jeans parlance are not, is not necessarily something that we've been good at. So, um, you know, technology is great, but you don't want to implement technology. If you try to implement a technical solution when you have that much variance, you're just going to essentially ensure a bad, you've taken a bad model and, and sort of poured it into concrete now because now you've created it in, in your technology solution. So, you know, sometimes when we're talking to vendors, we may spend half the time talking about our own process differences and how we're going to eliminate those in order to take advantage of the vendor tool rather than, you know, trying to make the vendor tool accommodate all our differences. So I think that's a different mindset that DevOps also promotes. To, to put a finer point on your idea of variance, because I think this is kind of crucial, what is the difference between business value-added variance and waste variance? So let's say I have a regular – so we have different types of initiatives, right? Some things we have are – you know, regulatory, right? Um, there may be certain requirements of of some regulatory project that goes out that you need to do things a little bit differently. Maybe it needs a little more diligence or it needs an extra step in the process or extra traceability or something that if you're, you know, doing some change for um, – your system that's going to sell life insurance or auto insurance, you may not need, right? So, the, you know, financial, especially things around retirement plans, tend to have more regulation than, you know, some of the other businesses, right? So, like, we're in pet insurance, right? I think the difference between managing a retirement plan and doing pet insurance or something is going to be different, right? So, if you have a difference, and nothing, you know, I love pets, but if you have a difference here, right, you're there may be a difference based on the fact that, you know, th- there's a different twist in, in the process. And it's not that it's going to be completely different, but there might be a reason f- for that, right? That That's fine, right? You may also, because of technology, right? So, you know, if you look at Jenkins, you look at continuous integration, that's great. And, and you can do things with Team Foundation Server for .NET, but if you're in mainframe, even though there are capabilities now, like with ZUnit and things, you typically don't have, con- you know, what does continuous integration mean for mainframe? I mean, we've thought about it, and you can kind of model a continuous integration, but it's not nearly as mature a process. So, so obviously, your process there is going to be a little different just because there's a technology difference and, and there's a difference in, in, you know, what your capability is going to be for that technology. So... So if you have either differences in the solution space that requires uh, you know change or or differences in the problem space that's fine 
But but you know one of the principles again of lean is this concept of five whys. And you know you, you ask a question, you get an answer. You ask why. It's kind of rooting, drilling into the root cause. And a lot of times we'd be sitting in rooms and we'd be talking about why these are different. And you know you might end up with an answer like either well that's just the way it always was or well that's the way my leader likes it. Which okay I appreciate that, but that's not that's not really value added. From an enterprise perspective, so, and it's not saying that there was there wasn't good reasons when they started, but at this point you have to be able to take a an honest look at things and say, is there value in the fact that we're doing things differently? And I would suggest eighty percent of the time or more, the answer is going to be no, right? So fine, pick one way that looks like a reasonable way, and then you know design towards that. And and rather than try to design and take into account all these all the variants that you may currently have, so so sometimes bringing in a tool if you do it right actually helps you clean up some of this if if you have that kind of mindset. The tool, even though the tool should be driven from the process, there's a symbiotic relationship here that when you're bringing in a tool, it forces you to look at the process, and you get feedback from implementing the tool, and it kind of can help you both improve the process and, and get a better solution in terms of how you implement that with the technology. So you've mentioned continuous delivery a couple times and continuous integration. This, this seems like one of the uh, tool sets that closely maps to DevOps. Um, how did you bring con- the, a philosophy of continuous delivery or continuous integration to Nationwide? So continuous integration, I think, came uh, was already you know was was pretty well established um, even ten years ago. Yeah, and and I just want to say right, most of what I'm talking about here, I didn't it was not because I did things right. I'm just sort of telling okay. the nationwide story. Um, oh sure. Um, but when I, yeah, so when I came in, actually. We had done pockets of Agile, but we hadn't done it in a persistent way because, again, we had this more of a focus around projects, and we get a project done, and then everybody would scatter to the wind, and we didn't have anything that you know we really didn't have the machinery to continue to 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 utilize for this. So, when companies say, "Well, I, where do you start?" or "I'm not doing DevOps," chances are they're doing some DevOps practice, right? If you look at the DevOps practices, there's things like version control. Well, people may not be version controlling everything, especially their infrastructure, but chances are they have some version control system for their source code, right? They're either using ChangeMan or Endeavor for mainframe, or they're using some version or or now Git or something on their source code. I mean, so it's not like they're not doing anything in that space. The same thing with with you know continuous integration a lot of companies have been doing continuous integration Hudson and now Jenkins um, so the, you know monitoring there was probably some kind of monitoring that's another DevOps practice so so I think what you find is people were doing these things but in a, not in a way that was interconnected as as part of this larger you know delivery process so um you know, I think that's kind of the mindset that you bring in. So uh, we started out, and we were in, you know, if you look back again five years ago, 
I think we had an advantage from the standpoint that we had established agile practices, which include some of these engineering practices like test-driven development, automated testing, continuous integration, obviously source code management, um, versioning. And then we also have a very strong lean program. So actually my boss, Tom Pater, is co-author with a book with Mike Orson around a lean IT. Um, so we had, we had done a lot of work with lean and we understood a lot of the lean concepts. So given that, when we started to look at DevOps, it was really applying those lean concepts to this delivery and, and building upon what we had already done. So continuous delivery is, is a key DevOps practice to take what you've generally you start, you, you know, most companies I've talked to tend to start with some kind of agile and then you sort of stretch it out at both ends, right? Continuous delivery then says, although there's more focus, I think, on the back end part and the automation towards deployment than the front end part and the planning part, um, which makes us maybe a little unique. But, you know, you say, okay, so I've gotten really good again in this in this middle part, the continuous integration, the version control, I can crank out uh, things pretty quickly. I can build every night or I can build very frequently. I get frequent feedback when a build's broken that I can fix it or that I have bad code quality. You know, I can use things like sonar for code quality analysis. So we got very good in that space and it's like, okay, now how do we take some of those concepts, right, and sort of stretch them, right? So, so you know, let's let's go up front to getting work in, you know, that flow of work more quickly into our process and then downstream around, you know, the automation, not just of what we're building for this team, but the conglomeration of, of different builds that come together to go through environments for release, right? So um, it's really just, if you think about it, kind of an evolution of what started. It's just that I think when we started with Agile, that's not the way we looked at it, right? We didn't have that big picture. Then you start to paint the big picture, it's like, it's not so dawning. It's like, well, okay, you've you've probably already done some of this, right? Now just think about it in a more systematic or more holistic way of how you can stretch this out. And you have to do it in a step of continuous uh, improvements, or you're not going to get there overnight. So you have to chop it up. And, and drive it as a series of experiments and continuous improvement activities. Um, so uh, I've had a couple of guests mention Gene Kim. Uh, I, Gene Kim did not, uh, I think he was too busy, couldn't come on the show uh, for this week of episodes. But um, given that I'm kind of a neophile, or neo, no, I guess neophyte is the <laughs> word. Neophile would be pretty weird. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I love new things. Uh, I mean, I guess DevOps is new to me, so I am a neophile in that sense. But um, no, so Gene Kim, so what is this? Like, I keep hearing about this guy. Why is he so iconic to the DevOps movement? So I think the reason, you know, my association with Gene probably started about Three years ago, he was a guest speaker at one of the IBM um, Innovate conferences. And um, a lot of people have, and like I think, you know, I remember having a lot of conversations around what is this DevOps and what does this mean? And 
but I think what Gene was able to do with his book, um, The Phoenix Project, is break this into, you know, take it from like a textbook manual kind of thing you would study, you know, in a college course or something into an experience that everybody can relate to, right? So it's a little exaggerated. It's kind of the Murphy's Law or the worst case of all the things that can go wrong. But people, you know, we've done book clubs and things, and I found that I've tried different books and different ways to get things across, but far and away, when they read The Phoenix Project, they resonate. There's a part of this book that resonates, right? They either resonate with, oh, yeah, I had a product owner that was like that, who all they cared about was delivery, and they could have cared less about quality. Or, yeah, I had operations people that I had to deal with that way. Or, yeah, we had a, we had a guy like, there's a guy in here who sort of knows everything, but it, it's sort of actually a negative because he's a bottleneck and he does things like magically that may fix problems but create other problems, right, because there's no system, right? And there's just a lot of chaos and things go bad and people are, you know, lots of stress and all these things are all rolled up into this book, right, that I think – and then the other thing I think, you know, part of the, what the genius uh, gene, gene is, is he was able to bring a lot of the lean concepts into the story. Um, it really is, the story really isn't about technology and tools as much as it is about process and systems thinking. Gene talks about three ways, right? One is systems thinking, which really maps in my mind a lot to the flow we talked about. Another one is amplify feedback loops, right? Again, the things that we've talked about. And then the third one is around having an environment of experimentation or continuous improvement. I mean, you could go all the way back to Deming, right, who's the quality guru of the 80s, who transformed Japan and then came to the United States to help help turn around some of the American uh, industries with qual- you know, things like then called total quality control. I mean, these, there's kind of a lineage here, but Gene just did a great job of applying some of those concepts to IT in a way people could relate to them. And then I think, you know, also applying kind of a mapping, right, with the work he then continued to do with with his company, IT Revolution, bringing in people like Jess Humble, um, other folks who, who are also iconic in the field, right, and, and really, um, you know, telling a story and then also providing some guidance and really committing himself. The other thing I think that comes through when you look at Gene and and Jez and some other folks is this just isn't about technology. This is about the quality of life of IT people. This is about not having to sacrifice weekends and the stress and you know somebody and I forget who, who I'm quoting but said, you know, we want to make deployment um a boring process, right? We want to take something from stressful to boring, right? So so it was really ingrained in how do we actually create a better environment for IT professionals and and get more collaboration. And oh, by the way, we're all, you know, companies do this can also be very successful, right? But but it it is around, you know, what is the experience of an IT of an IT person, a professional, a team, an organization and and how they can work better. So I think that idea has really has really resonated because it's just not a technology face. It's like putting a human face on what we're really trying to solve. How does 
How does DevOps affect the interaction between the technology team and the business side of things? So that's a great question because I think for the most part, we try to avoid dealing with the business. <laughs> I mean, if you look at Agile, it was almost like we changed a lot of the way things work, but, you know, we're not really, we changed the engine, we changed the transmission, but if you get in the car, it all looks the same. You know, if it flies a little, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll make it seem like it's still running on the ground. I mean, it just, we, we tried to really keep things away from the business. And even with DevOps, to some degree, I think, like I said, a lot of the focus has been on the technology side of automation, you know, configuration, the chefs, the puppets, you know, now Docker, things like that. At some point, though, you have to engage the business because especially if you look at the state of DevOps report that Puppet Labs has been putting out um, and the 2015 report just came out, it shows very clearly that organizations that actually deploy more frequently with less content are not only provide higher quality and higher feedback, but they also are, are more product productive, which is kind of something that would throw people. In fact, I, I wrote something on DevOps.com. I wrote a series with Lee Reed and Sanjeev Sharma from IBM around sort of the calculus of DevOps and the fact that there's kind of this misconception that if you package more things, you're going to get a higher productivity. When in reality, because of all the dependencies that, that crop in and the protracted planning that crops in, you actually get less productivity. So you sort of get so, – go ahead. So you're saying, you're saying that there's this small, this small incremental process that you increase the speed of and the output ends up being greater than if you have these – uh, gigantic releases. Um, so what I'm curious about is why why is that orthogonal with having the business involved? Couldn't you say to the business, hey, look, uh, we'd love to have you involved, but if you're going to get involved, you have to have requests that fit in a tweet or something, you know, so extremely <laughs> small requests. Well, I mean, that's that actually is a great example, and that's sort of where the A3 concept from Toyota Lean came about in continuous improvement because if you couldn't fit it on an A3 piece of paper, that meant it was too big an idea to actually try to improve at one time. And I think what you get into there, there's a, there's a lot of factors, right? There's this kind of psychological mindset around a planning mindset versus an adaptive mindset. Agile, DevOps, focus on being adaptive when in fact most business, not the stereotype, but business in general is around planning. They want they want twelve month plans. They want eighteen month plans. I remember having just hearing things like, well, I like to know what everybody in the organization is going to be doing and have them booked for the next eighteen months. Well that's sounds like a plan to go out of business, right? Um but but they like they like you know that kind of certainty when in fact we're in a place where there is no certainty. And and it kind of you know, in patterns, what we saw with the transition from Agile to Waterfall, right? With Waterfall, change was the enemy. Like, it was all about resist change. You know, you can find books that say, you you know, you can't have your requirements change. That will affect your quality. You have to lock down your requirements. Well, we had to get over that, and it was hard for us from IT to get over that, right? Well, it's the same concept with business. It's, it's you know, I, I like these big projects, these multi-year projects, um, 
I like some certainty. I like to track them, right? When in fact, you know, you, you have to develop a more adaptive mindset and it has to be less on projects and more kind of a product. Like, how am I going to invest in my products, right? How am I going to make some of these products better that I think are going to, you know, generate sales and generate business? So it's, it's, it's a shift in mindset that I think, um, you know, is a challenge and maybe the hardest part of this. I haven't really... So, so but can, have you been able to shift the mindset of the business folks? So we haven't really... We've sort of incrementally approached that. So, for example, one way that we're doing that is is by now showing them uh, we've linked the backlog of our agile teams with their portfolio plans. Before there was no linkage, but now what they'll be able to see is you actually have opportunities to deliver earlier that you're not taking advantage of. We have teams sitting around waiting for work that was invisible. There was one area that actually had to go around. They had five agile teams. They had, you know, they had their information in, in, in an agile planning tool, rational team concert, but they would actually go around and count in, you know, on a piece of paper what their capacities were for future iterations so that they can put into a spreadsheet that I think got translated into another spreadsheet to just to show, you know, how they could plan work. But that just shows how disconnected this whole process was, right? So, so you know, we have this engine and we're starving it. So I wanted to show by showing now business areas where they have opportunities to deliver more quickly. Um, I think that gives, that's one opportunity, but it really does take something probably larger around transforming, you know, your front end process, the front end of this delivery value stream. I think eventually you know, you can incrementally get some improvements, but I think you actually have, will have to get the business to think much differently about how they can um, send work in high-value work, prioritize much more quickly into the stream, and think more about, look, if it, you're going to get feedback. Right now, there's, there's this fear that, well, you know, if I got, a, if I got something that's only going to be released every six months or... I have this big initiative that phase one is, you know, it's going to take 12 months. I may fight for three months by getting my pro- my feature in there because I realize if it falls below the line, I'm going to miss another 12 months. I mean, there are organizations that spend more than half their budget before they even put a story in the backlog of an agile team because they spend so much time on this protracted planning. If you go up to a to a, to a portfolio leader and you say, what's your most important thing? They can tell you in probably if 12, you know, 15 seconds. But if you say, give me your top 100 things that you want to put in this release, well, you know, you might have to come back in six months. So, so part of it is trying to encourage them by showing that if they do, here's your opportunity, give us something, you'll get it back much quicker, you'll get feedback, and you can go. But I do think there's, there's a transformation process that you're going to have to address to actually make that work in a large enterprise, right? It's one thing for a Netflix or an Etsy or somebody. I think it's another thing for an enterprise with 9,000, you know, 2,000 applications, right? 9,000 employees to IT uh, employees to try to, to deal with that. But we're chipping, we are chipping away at it though. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's such a unique challenge and I, I would like to get more insight into the, the specificities. I mean, Maybe you could highlight 
some of the differences or the difficulties between because I mean the the, the I, I've I've interviewed uh, some guys from Netflix uh, and uh, you know other you know Facebook other companies that have more recent recently built infrastructure so that, so it's more in line with the types of things that uh, are going on but um, you know it is it is certainly a, a realistic application um, set of set of application difficulties to deal with that you face it nationwide so i'm i'm curious how you think that those the the problems that you encounter just on a more general sense uh, whether or not it involves the question of devops just from a software engineering perspective what how does the the development experience contrast with a place like netflix or etsy well i i think first of all you know you have to look at your portfolio of applications that you have right and what's your business app What's your product? You know, do, are you really thinking about things from the perspective of a, a product, or are you thinking about things in perspective of I have a large project that I want done that may impact dozens of products, but that's kind of invisible to me from a planning perspective. I mean, even the concept of a product owner. So in Agile, one of the concepts is the product owner sits with the team and helps prioritize work. Um, and address any issues. We weren't even thinking in terms of product owners, right? We were, we were thinking more around, we had, everybody had an application owner, but there was nobody. So, so here would be an example, right? Let's say I have a couple systems that focus on, you know, selling a certain insurance product or something. I could go to those, I could treat that as a product or a product line, and I could say, okay, I'm going to invest. We think there's a market here um, to make improvements. We have some, you know, we're going to invest X million dollars over two years and we need a 10% return on investment. And you know what? Um, we're, going to, we're going to empower that team. We're going to, we're going to put a product. Um, and in fact, Sanjeev's, um, Sanjeev Sharma, who I said was one of the people in my, uh, blog uh, actually did something called the art of DevOps where he talks more in detail about this. But essentially you would go to that product team and you would empower them and say, okay, I, you know, go, you got two years to bring back, you know, we're going to give you this much money you go, and, you know, we're expecting a 10% return on investment or whatever it is, you know, over this period of time, right? When I'm not going to go off and spend six months developing a project with requirements. I'm, here it is. Go. You guys have the capability between product owner, the team, the feedback loops that you put in to measure the value. That's another thing. Developers really haven't been, you know, it was like, well, we get requirements and we put stuff out. Do we know what value we're providing? No. Do we have the right metrics? That wasn't part of our job. Well, now that is part of this concept is, is are we measuring the right things to make sure that we can show that we are delivering this value. So this team then could go out and they could they could do a release a month, they could do a release, they could do one release for two years, probably not good, because now you're taking one shot and getting everything back with no feedback. Chances are they would they would come up with some frequent release schedule and they would think hard. I actually talked to somebody who went through this process and they had actually got requirements for the first release, which they implemented, but that was all they had. And then most of those were like foundational capabilities. So now they came to the second release, 
and they were a couple weeks in and they realized that nothing that they were in their backlog was going to give them any return. And they said, we can't, what are we doing? And they, they had to go back and rethink working with the product owner, what they wanted and completely restructured what they put in that release to end up with the return and, and getting, you know, substantial return from that. That's a totally different model than what you would and result that you would end up with if you took your traditional project kind of approach where you, know, you would not have really empowered that team with the product owner to try to drive those kind of results. So that's a different way of thinking about it. You know, I'm not that as familiar with the inner workings of you know some of the the companies that I know are very innovative, but I'm guessing they have more of that kind of model unless a model of I got this portfolio of very large projects and very, you know, three, four, five year things, and I'm basically, you know, going to spend all this time and then dump dump this work on this team, IT team, who really just their responsibility is just to deliver what we tell them, but but they're not really thinking about the value of what goes in, and there's not a close, necessarily close relationship with the product itself that they're supporting from that perspective. So I saw some. Uh, IBM marketing uh, materials around uh, nationwide and uh, DevOps. Do you have a partnership with IBM, or is there some sort of association there, or, or was I just misreading something? Uh, I can't stand those IBM guys. Actually, no. Um, we have a <laughs> we have, yeah. The that just ends up being on the webcast. Will be in trouble. Um, so we <laughs> have certain par- we have certain vendors or partner. You know, we, we have strategic partners with right ibm is one of our strategic vendors um what is that what is that relationship like how do you um you know what how do you leverage the technology from ibm do they do they come in and and implement stuff or or do they just have software that they sell you and you just use it however you want or how does that relationship work so i'll just kind of talk generically because i've worked with a lot of different vendors and sure sort of describe a good experience to what i consider a bad experience right so we have okay. a number of strategic vendors um but i think the difference when you're working with a good part with a good and i'll use the word partner is they really are more of a partner in the sense that it's it's you know your interactions are not sales interactions right your interactions are around what's the problems are you trying to solve and how can you best solve them, right? Which may involve some of the products that they have, but it also may involve integrating with other products that they don't have, right? A good vendor will realize, especially a large enterprise, is going to have a heterogeneous environment. And and what a bad vendor will, or I shouldn't say good, bad vendor, right? There's people here, right? But But, you know, a bad experience is where one, comes in and that one product, you know, there's these, there's a couple products you're not using and every conversation or every other conversation is around, you know, you should have been using our product here. And if you used our product, this would be easier. And, you know, well, we have other customers and they don't have these problems because they're using our product, right? That's a bad, that's where you feel like every interaction is a sales interaction and you're not really, they're not really trying to solve the, your problems, right? A good, a good experience is when, they're willing to actually, you know, sit with you and help you design solutions and understand. Obviously, giving you the their insights of other customer experiences, letting you talk to other customers, right? Unfiltered, like 
you know, sometimes you'll go to a talk at some of these and they'll tell you something that wasn't a great experience, right? And you can hear that. Um, and, and really feel like they have some skin in the game to actually help you be successful, right? And, and, and you know, in a way you're helping them because, you know, you're one of their experiments, for lack of a better word, right? You're you're going to give them feedback about what you're doing. And so you, you don't, you, you know, to them, they're just somebody that you're working with that's knowledgeable and can help you implement things and, and, and are willing to do things, you know, it's not just, well, here's the way to do it. You know, this is the way you got to use it this way. They're actually listening and taking feedback and, and providing alternatives or making changes, you know, based on what you're trying to do. So, you know, I think that's, that's the difference. And I've given kind of this, you know, feedback to some vendors will, you know, explain, what works and what doesn't. And when you're working with somebody like that, I mean, you really do feel like you don't even think of them as this is that person from, you know, vendor X, Y, or Z. You're thinking about, you know, you know, this is Lee or, you know, you know, this is someone who's coming in to help me solve this problem. Right. And, and, uh, I mean that, that's really, I think what you strive for, you know, to try to, uh, Accomplish. If you can get that kind of relationship, then you can really make a lot of progress. Is there anything else you would like to say about DevOps or engineering at Nationwide? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Nationwide's been, I can voted one of the best, uh, I think it's, the f- well, 100 companies to work for through, I think, the uh, some of our the Gallup surveys that we've done. But I really think... Um, yeah, it, it has, it is an innovative environment, right? And a lot of people are surprised times when we talk like, gee, you know, I thought insurance would be boring. So, you know, um, I mean, they provided a lot of opportunities to be innovative. And I think a lot of these, a lot of the companies, right, you've, you've talked to, I'm sure, you know, and a lot of the people that are going to be talking at the conference again this year in October, I mean, they, they tell some amazing stories, right? So there's, Nordstrom's and Macy's and other folks who tell stories about some of the innovation, which is also, I think, very cool in this space, right? I mean, people are willing to share information about how they solve problems, right? Because um, there is kind of this this feeling of, you know, we're all sort of in this together. We're trying to, to improve the experience. We're trying to learn from each other. Um, even the people who are very good at this are also some of the icons are very humble about it. So, you know, I think, I think it's been a, it's a, it's really a, a great set of folks, you know, to learn a lot from. And, um, and again, Nationwide is really, you know, grateful for some of the opportunities and some of the, you know, a lot of support for innovative ways that take some risk, right. That, um, but you have to do that if you're going to stay ahead, right? If you wait, you know, if you wait two years or three years to start down this path, then that, and then you're going to have a lot of catching up to do. So, um, you know, I think um, I've been in this industry for a while, and I think this takes a lot of the best of a lot of different things, agile, lean, you know, and then some of the cultural issues, making a better environment for the people and kind of rolls it into one. So I think it's, yeah, I feel very fortunate to, you know, to be in this space right now. Cool. 
Well, Carmen Diardo, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. I hope uh, I enjoyed it, and I hope uh, people get some value out of it. Thanks. <laughs>